Well, hello there. Tom here from The Run Testers with our monthly podcast. In this episode, we are going to be talking about ultras. So as well as Kieran, a man who quite likes to run long distances, we've also got a special guest, Hannah Tildesley, who works for Ultra X, and she's also half of Twice the Health. So they're going to be answering questions on all sorts of things to do with ultra running, like how to get involved, what you can expect from races, the sort of kit that you need to look at getting if you're planning on um, joining an ultra race at some point, and the sort of fueling you might need to do as well. If you're listening to the audio version of this podcast, you'll also get an interview that Kieran has done with ultra runner Damien Hall, where he talks about his book, We Can't Run Away From This, where Damien looks at the environmental impact of running from both brands and individuals. So let's jump in and do the podcast. Okay, so we're here with Kieran. And uh, we have a guest on, Hannah Tilsley, who you may know from the world of ultra running. She works for Ultra X as, uh, what, what's your job title there, Hannah? I am Community and Partnerships Manager, um, but being a small company, we uh, we tend to dip our toes into a bit of everything. Um, so I also look after the, the content at races um, and actually more most recently day to day as well. So a little bit of a communications across the board I guess. Brilliant well we've got we've got you in today to talk about ultra running and this is something that I don't really know a great deal about I've done a couple of sort of 50k ones but um, not particularly well Um, so obviously we've we've got we've got Kieran who uh, likes a little bit of long distance running as we've we we know from uh, various events he's done and we'll we'll dip into those in in a bit but really we're gonna we're gonna just have a a chat about the world of ultra running, what it is, what people can expect from it. And as with the run testers, we'll be talking a little bit about the sort of kit that people should be wearing when they, they look at doing ultras. Sounds great. Excellent. I'm going to convince you to do an ultra by the end of this, Tom. That's that's the that's our plan. By the end of it, you'll be ready. People are always trying to convince me to do ultras and I just can't be bothered with it. I actually have a pretty good track record of convincing people to do these things like it's almost like an ongoing joke between me and my friends friends who have absolutely said and to be fair I was one of them I remember when a friend asked me to do Jordan I was like absolutely not why would anyone do that that sounds like the worst thing I could possibly put myself through and here we are so um well you've you've got about 30 40 minutes to try and convince me and and this is going to be on the record so if, if it works then you get full credit for it but um yeah, let's see. Let's see how if you can make those skills last on a man who's probably spent ten years avoiding doing. So yeah, it's going to be. It's going to put it to the test. All right, let's just let's jump straight into the questions. So um, I suppose the main one is, and this is there's probably people listening to this podcast that don't really know a lot about ultra running, and it is of quite a confusing concept to to get a, a hold of. Um, I remember when I started looking into ultra running, quite a lot of websites say that ultra running is basically any distance running over uh, 26.2 miles. So if you go over a marathon, you're basically ultra running. But there's probably a little bit more to it than that. And I I think most people would probably have different views on what exactly ultra running is. So Hannah, what, what in... How would you see or how would you explain ultra running to somebody who didn't know anything about it? Well, I think first things first is is obviously the distance is, is technically anything over a marathon. And I think people get really hung up, especially in the kind of current current way of the world. And, and as the sport grows, that it needs to be like, you know, some crazy 200 kilometer plus distance. And, and obviously that's not true. I know you kind of did it at the beginning. Ultra running really is anything over a marathon. And uh, in my slightly biased opinion, it's it's far more enjoyable than a marathon because there's a lot less pressure on kind of time and uh, splits it's more about where you've been what you've seen 
maybe maybe a little bit on how high you've climbed. How about you, Kieran? You probably you've done a, you've done a fair bit of ultra running in your time. How, how would you explain it to somebody who didn't have a clue what it was? Yeah, I mean, some people might kind of say that the sort of fifty k mark is it's kind of almost like a lower benchmark really for what you call ultra ultra races, but. Listen, I think anything that extends you over and beyond the, the marathon distance, and it can be in race conditions, it can be on your own. I think it, essentially what ultra running does is sort of open up this world of of running as kind of exploration and adventure and uh, a slightly you know, slower and easier challenge if you're not kind of racing up the top with the elites. And, you know, some people sort of have described it as, you know, it's a long walk with snacks. But, <laughs> you know, so you're, you're mixing up running with walking and hiking. You're probably going to places that, you know, you don't you wouldn't normally reach if you're doing kind of urban runs really and places that other people can't get to or you can only get to on foot so to me it's very much ultra running that mindset really is about the exploration and adventure and like hannah said sort of seeing new things and it being an experience and a longer journey than necessarily chasing a, a city marathon um so it's not is it is it just long trail running i mean technically i would say yeah yes yeah true yeah i mean that's the thing there's it can be you know there's plenty there are there's you know i think when I first went made the journey from marathon to ultra, I set out to try and do what I was like five or six different types of ultra that I thought there were. So, you know, one was a, a trail ultra in the UK on, on the coast. One was a mountain ultra, the hundred k, the fifty k, and then the hundred mile. But there's the you know there's twenty four hour track races. There's the comrades marathon, which is all road. So there's there's this whole variety of ultra. There's now you know, two hundred mile races the multi-stage ultra like the mds or the ultra x races where you're you know you're running longer distances but over a period of sort of five or six days so there's a variety but many many i think of them sort of tend to go to the trails or to places where i guess there's it's nicer things to look at but. i think that's the beauty of it in some respects is that there is no kind of it's why there's such a variety of very very good ultra marathon runners because the best mountain runner in the world won't be the fastest comrades time, you know, that they take such different kind of skills and um, abilities to conquer different disciplines of the ultra marathon. And I think that's what makes it such a cool sport is that there really is something for everyone, even from like uh, kind of external conditions, like the weather or whatever. If if you go to the desert, you're very good at (laughs) keeping yourself cool, then, then perhaps you're going to prosper in that, in that area of ultra marathon running. But if not, then maybe something no there's obviously ones in the antarctic or at the complete other end of the spectrum there is actually as as kieran said so many different types of ultra marathons and therefore really no reason for people not to try it okay so let's delve into how what's the best way to get started if if, if you're listening to this and you're thinking oh i wouldn't mind giving ultra running a go is there is there a good entry point for ultra running? Is it uh, should you just sign up for a, a big race, or is is there a way to get into it that is easily accessible for people who maybe haven't done anywhere near the distance before? So I think the first thing and the most difficult thing is always the actually saying yes to it. Uh, I haven't been doing the very long at all, and I'm definitely not an expert in uh, in this running world. But I remember my, some of my best experiences are things that. First up, I said absolutely no to because I was scared that I couldn't do it or I thought it was too hard for me or, or you know, it was out of my comfort zone, whatever. The, the easiest thing to do is at first, if it's like, if you see even just slightly kind of tickled your fancy or you've taken a slight interest into it, just say yes, because actually that's the most difficult part. The rest of it is obviously has its highs and lows, but but that's the easiest part. I think also don't, don't be afraid to go into something that scares you. I think 
But so often people say, don't jump in the deep end. I think sometimes in ultramarathon running, you kind of have to, because if you're going into ultramarathon running, the like kid is you're already jumping in the deep end, because whether it's 43.2 kilometers or 200 kilometers, it's a very, very long way. And I guess the once you've kind of said yes or, or, or thought about it, the big thing for me is I think see it as an experience. So don't just sign up to it because it's 100 miles. Sign up to it because... It's somewhere you want to see that's a cool part of the world or some friends are doing it or there's a cool community around it. Like make it make it more than just a race. And I think that also makes it a lot easier to kind of commit to that first one and also make the experience a lot more enjoyable rather than it seem seem very daunting and something that actually you just fear for the four months you train for it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Kira, do you have any thoughts on uh, easy entry points for people, newbies that want to start? Yeah, I mean, I I think there's there's a really great book by uh, Stephen Magnus, I think he's there, and it, it's called Do Hard Things. And one of the things that he I've seen him kind of mention quite a lot is about the it's, like, it's really important to have the goals that are, they're not too difficult, they don't stretch you too far because if it's too intimidating and too far, it can be quite kind of paralyzing, and they need to be achievable but difficult, you know. So, and I think that's really there's a great way of sort of doing that with ultra. The, my very first ultra was actually there used to be a thing called the Royal Parks Ultra, so it was an extension of the half marathon. You actually started at the start with the half marathon runners. You'd run through London. At one point, you would turn right over a bridge and then head back west in London. And all the half marathoners would just go the other way. And then you did, I think it was 30 miles. So it was like a 50K. And up to that point, I'd I'd run marathons before that. But those extra five miles, although they were definitely enormously daunting, and I had no idea what it would be like going that little bit further, and it felt like a huge step. Actually, now I look back, it was a nice little jump up and I it was on road or on flat by the river you know a little bit of river path so it wasn't too crazy in terms of technical running and mountain running and I think that's that's a nice thing to do is to go you know just take a little bite and I think that's that's really how I would sort of suggest in in anyone's kind of running sort of growth you sort of go from you know couch to 5k 5k to 10k 10k to the half and you're taking off these little bites and I think that can be a great way to do it I also you know with what Hannah said sometimes if you really need to get the focus in you want to go and do something that's maybe a little bit it's going to scare you into action you know you got to be make sure that you're well prepared and that you take something that is motivating and inspiring but mm-hmm. I think there's there's definitely something to be said to be sort of taking taking those kind of little steps and you know there are plenty of, of races out there that enable you to go up in small steps rather than going straight to your first 100 miler yeah and I, I suppose there's a lot of ultra running events as well where when it's when it's road distance, there's a very big focus on time. So people get fixated about the time they're going to do their marathon, and even if it's their first one. But with with ultra running events, it's a little bit different, isn't it? You you can walk, and you it's more more about finishing and the experience than than just trying to hit that that time that for some reason everyone seems to want to hit. Yeah, there are some great races as well. You know, you can you'll be able to find these. I mean, we could suggest them, but you know, the threshold series races that. They are full of people who are doing this for the first time, really. There's a lot of people doing it for the first time. They've got lots of aid stations to help. There's lots of support. There's lots of people who are in the same boat, you know, so there's a great spirit. I mean, on Ultra, there's always that great spirit of people helping you along. Everybody wants everyone else to finish, you know, but some of them are a little bit more uh, open to, or or there's a a few more people who might be having this experience for the first time. There's something really helpful and, and, and good about having, you know, being in that kind of crowd as well. 
Um, sorry, sorry, Hannah, you can say something. No, I was just going to say I did threshold as one of my first, my first as my first hundred kilometer, and it would like you know hit the nail on the head. It was so welcoming. I spoke to so many people who were also doing their first ultra marathon at the start line and out on the course, and there's something very comforting about that. And you know, you're always bound to find people who are doing it for the for the first time. I'm sure, but I think threshold definitely facilitate a, a very kind of welcoming environment for that. Um, and they also do allow you to do the just the one day or do it over two days or do it in one day. So there's that opportunity to kind of jump up as you, as you progress, get more confident. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've actually done a couple of the threshold series ones. Well, the same one twice, um, race of the stones, but I, I only managed to get to 50 K. Well, I did it at Kieran, but I twisted my ankle. So I had to stop at 50 K. <laughs> um, but I, I think the thing about the threshold series, which is good is it means that you can focus on the distance and not anything else because you don't have to worry about food. You don't have to worry about where you're staying and all those sorts of things. It's just, you've, you've always got enough food and water along the way. Whereas a lot of events that you do, and I, I'm sure you've both done events like these where you'd have to take your own pack and you have to be in charge of your, your own, your, your own kit as you're going along there. There's a lot more pressure on, on not just the run itself and the distance, but also on just, everything staying alive from 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 the elements as well so with that in mind what do you both think makes for a good ultra event i think the first one for me would be the place i think one of the the best things about ultramarathon running is obviously that you you run a relatively long way which means you get to see a lot more of a a place than you perhaps would if you were just going on holiday or if you were hiking even um i know slightly different with cycling but i don't cycle so (laughs) um we're going to stick to to being able to run a long way and explore and emily and i who's um my kind of business partner when we first sort of delved into the long distance running stuff we used to do like self-supported 50 kilometer runs run hikes and we chose incredible parts of the world to do them in so we did our first one in the grand canyon and then we did the great wall of china and then we did the great ocean road and it was so empowering one you know being self-supported obviously we had we knew people that were out there but but kind of being out there by ourselves and being able to soak up this incredible kind of landscape or environment that we were in obviously it varied depending on where we were and so i think when it came to choosing sort of my first race I went with the desert which obviously was again like a really really cool part of the world and perhaps corner of the earth I never would have visited if I wasn't doing an ultra marathon so I think that's definitely a big one for me and I think probably the go-to for most people obviously based on accessibility and all those things the second one and perhaps this takes knowing the industry a little bit better or having friends that that do these events is definitely the community and the support yes of course there's some value I'm sure once you get more experienced in going to those races that you do have to kind of completely kind of fend for yourself and it's a lot a lot riskier in terms of external factors but actually especially when you're doing your first race I think knowing there's going to be well-supported checkpoints knowing there's going to be lots of people out on course knowing you're never that far away from someone should you need some help or support or whatever is actually really really valuable and I definitely took that for granted when I was doing my first kind of races, I just assumed that every race was like this. And actually, as Kieran said, the threshold events are incredibly well supported, as are, you know, as are the Ultra X events. It's kind of the same thing. Um, and I think there's definitely a lot of value in that and a lot of reassurance in that if you're doing your first one. All good advice. Kieran, have you got any uh, like suggestions for first Ultra events that you would suggest are a good, good um, fit for people who are just looking to like, apart from the threshold series we've kind of covered those yeah i mean we've we've mentioned threshold i i think you you want to look i mean there's there's so many races out there and i another set of races that um aside of the threshold series that i look at is the centurion series mm. these are a little bit more I, I guess they're a little bit more serious isn't the right word but they're a little bit more challenging perhaps they're not quite so geared to 
the first timers, but they are brilliantly well marshaled. And they do uh, a range of races that are from, they do 50 milers and 100 milers. And the 50 milers in different locations are South Downs and the North Downs in the UK, brilliantly accessible. And again, I, I just think the spirit of the people who, who uh, are on the aid stations and look after those races, they know ultra running inside out. They know how to look after you. They can see when you might be struggling and what you need. They know when to say, come on, tough it out or, you know, have a seat. So mm. one of my experiences in one of those races, the last aid station, there are some chairs and I, you know, I've been running for 23 hours. And as I arrived, this guy, could he could see, he sensed, because he's been standing all day seeing people, that if I sat in that chair, I wasn't going anywhere for hours. So he took the chair away. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's a bit, it's a bit extreme. But, you know, they, well, I mean, they just, they kind of get ultra running really well. And I think that's, that's somewhere to look. I also, I mean, I, I think we'll talk about Ultrax probably, but if you want something that's going to take you a bit further afield, and I completely agree with Hannah here, I think you need to find something that's going to grab you by the gut and make you, you know, really inspired to go and run it. That really helps. So often the races that I've picked, I've just seen a picture of someone doing it and it's just caught my imagination and I've invested in it as a result. That's been great. And the only other thing I'd say is if you can find somewhere for those early Ultras that if you've got a very supportive family, I loved being in places where I could bring my family along for the experience and they might either be on the course or, or nearby at the end. And, you know, friends and family can come and support you. And that is a huge, huge help outside of anything else that I ever take in my kit. If I can have a few people there to encourage me along the way, I think that's a huge thing. So, so choose somewhere that they want to go to. Yeah. Good holiday. Choose somewhere that they might want to go on holiday. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, just that's accessible, accessible. And here's another sort of quick tip on that. Some of your, when you're thinking about your first ultra, one thing that you it's easy to forget is that you often finish a long way from where you start, right? And you, somehow you've got to get back. So having friends and family there at the end to spill you into a car is dead handy. Okay, cool. Well, let's let's dive into training. Now, tra- training something that I'll, I'll pose it from my, my perspective. I run a lot of half marathons, a lot of marathons. I can't get my head around the training for ultra marathons. I've got a friend who keeps trying to get me to do do them as well. And he seems to be doing a lot of, of mileage. Is it really just the case of if you're doing an ultra marathon, you just need to train a lot more or it, have I got it wrong? Because that's, that's one of the main things that's dissuading me from doing an ultra marathon. I wouldn't, I mean, obviously, if you're running further, the, the natural kind of uh, assumption is that you, is that you need to be putting in more miles. I think there's definitely... I'm not going to pretend that it's not time consuming and it's not a lot of miles, but there is definitely a way that you can train a bit smarter. Um, I can't say I follow it, but I, th- I think that there definitely is. If if you didn't have the time or the lifestyle that allowed for lots of miles, there's definitely a way of training in a, in a smarter manner that allows you to kind of obviously get uh, time on your feet um, and get in the key sessions, but doesn't mean you have to be running 10 to 12 hours a week. I think the thing I would say is whilst, in a lot of cases it does kind of equate to more miles being run I hadn't trained for like a fast marathon ever and I tried to do it last year and I was running less miles but I had a lot more kind of I guess key sessions or faster sessions or tempo sessions or whatever which meant that my social side of my training so when I just rang friends and was like hey I've got 20 miles who wants to come and join and someone might join for a few miles and it didn't matter what pace we were running at or whether we stopped for coffee six times or whatever it was just about getting the miles in having time on my feet often my my training was put in hours so if I was out for three hours it didn't matter if I'd walked or ran really as long as I was kind of putting in that time on my feet I lost a lot of that with marathon training because instead of having three hours on a Sunday, I'd have 10k at 
four fifteens, ten k at four, you know, whatever it might be. So actually, there wasn't that many people that really wanted to come and do that with me because it wasn't very nice. Um, whereas with ultramarathon training, yes, maybe the hours are more and the miles are more, but I feel like it can be a lot more social. And also, you can do it anywhere. You don't need to run around Battersea Park in circles. You can drive out of London or drive away from where you live, and actually, it's a really cool opportunity to explore. So. Whilst at first I know it seems daunting and it seems like more time and more miles, I think you can kind of flip it on its head and look at it in a way that has a lot of pros to that rather than cons necessarily. Good answer that. You're converting me. It's <laughs> you're, se- you're selling it to me. Thank you. Uh, Kieran, I know, I know you're a man who likes a, a contemplative long run of a weekend. I suppose that's a nice bonus for you. Yeah, I mean, I, that's the way I think this, it's, this is sort of going through the ultra thing. I think it sort of flips the mentality a little bit and you, you start to want to keep the pace down and be and enjoy being out for as long as you can. I mean, I, I will often just now go out and escape into the new forest and it's a great Sunday afternoon is if I've got a bit of food in a backpack and I can go and disappear for four hours and not see anyone. And I don't always, I mean, I'm not running that whole four hours. I'm running a bit very low and slow. I'll stop, sit on the log, eat some food and go again. And, you know, just, just enjoy moving at a slower pace and trying to get my head up and enjoy the surroundings. And I think, that changes the way that you think about running and training. And I know that it, it can be very easy to think about those kind of, but we're thinking about running hard and fast. And I think a lot of people do that in their marathon training anyway. And perhaps, you know, there's a good argument to do a, a lot of lower and slower training and ultra kind of speaks to that. But I, I think as well as the sort of physical side and getting that fitness, one of the big things that you've got to do obviously is train your mind. And that's where much of it comes in, I think. And those long days on feet, whether you're running or walking, hiking or whatever, you know, your ability to kind of push through and go when you feel like you don't really want to, that's that's crucial. The other thing I, I guess is, you know, there's all the kind of strength training stuff so that you're making sure that your your running form and how you're running and you've got the best kind of foundation to do all of those miles off without getting injured and that can really help. Runners hate doing strength training mostly, but it completely changed my own ultra running ability by spending a lot of time in the gym. And in fact, when I trained for the Marathon de Saab, I did quite low mileage. I think the furthest that I ran ahead of that race was probably a 17 or 18 miler. Mm-hmm. I saw lots of people going out and they were doing back-to-back marathons and they were spending a long time on feet right up to the race. And I didn't. I did low mileage. I did quite low intensity. I did an awful lot of time in the gym doing weighted squats and lifting. And I actually went into that multi-day ultra un- undercooked, unfit, essentially, or less than fit. And then throughout the week, my coach said to me, don't worry, don't panic. So I was watching all these other people running loads of miles. I was thinking, am I getting this right? I put a lot of trust in. He said, don't worry, you're going to get stronger as the race goes on. Everyone else who's done all of that really massive volume mileage in the build-up too close are going to get tired during the week. And he was absolutely right. I, I finished that race running the marathon day stronger than I started and and loved it. And I, I think there's there's something about kind of, you know, not just thinking about the running as well, the final thing I, on that, I think, is just food and nutrition, which I think we're going to come on to. But you have, it's different and you have to train yourself to be able to consume calories and get your hydration right. It's, it becomes more important as you go further. That's another area that I can't be bothered with. Um, <laughs> eating. But, well, I love eating. Scott, you are strategic just... eating. I, I like eating, but I don't like doing it strategically and carrying it around with me. Yeah, when I say that, though, I mean, when I say strategically, I mean, you start, when you do this, you'll go for a marathon stop, so you probably start out still thinking about gels and, you know, and, and, and hydration tablets. And as you get a bit more experience, you start eating pork pies and sausage rolls and whatever well, we, it is. I think we, we all saw your meal updates when you were in the Danube uh, <laughs> schnitzels and cakes every day and stuff that did look pretty yeah. good actually i was quite jealous i was, gonna yeah. say I, was I was doing it anyway <laughs> yeah 
I was going to say, if anything, it's, it's, it's less strategic. I think it's, uh, I am very bad at, at, and part of the reason I failed running a fast marathon is, um, because I just am rubbish at the like gel every 10k or whatever you're supposed to do, however many carbs you're supposed to have an hour. I'm, I'm terrible at that stuff, but I am very good at eating and I'm very good at eating like the foods I really like, like sandwiches and pasta and, you know, crisps and cheese and all of these things. And because you're moving at a slightly slower pace and because you, not so worried about I mean obviously you're worried a little bit about what you're carrying but nowhere near as much as you are when you're running a fast road marathon I'm, I'm better at it if anything because I just eat whenever I want and you're walking so it is just a walking picnic and I think that's that makes it slightly easier ever since I uh, read Dean Carnassus the first book when he talks about running and eating pizza on the way and people delivering your pizza during the during your training sessions I, I did, did tempt me with that <laughs> yeah um, it's de- definitely so it seems like one of the high points of ultra running yeah for sure. um one of my favorite things, I went to the UTMB as a journalist and was able to watch the runners come into the Cormier aid station, which is about halfway around. And they've been running for, I don't know, six hours or so as the elites. And they lay out all their tables and their crew put down the foods that they're going to eat and they bring them in. And it's like a, you know, like an F1 pit stop. And my favorite table was one runner. Some people came in, they had like Ritz crackers and they had this kind of all sorts of lovely looking food and different selections. One guy came out and he just had one quarter of this massive picnic bench. And he just had some sushi rolls on it. And the runner came in and had sushi rolls. I was thinking, I don't know how that seems out there to me. But when you actually think back to it, it's like, it's basically just good white rice, which burns fast. It's good fast burning carbs, a bit of salt in the seaweed. Mm. And it's absolutely bang on. Mm. But, you know, it just shows you, like, when you get to a certain level, I reckon, you know, you can, as long as it works for you, whatever. Okay, so let's let's carry on with the um, the fueling then. Hanno, when you're doing what, what sort of distance do you do? What's your biggest distance that you've done for a, an ultra event? Um, in one go, it was race to the stones. I did 100k, but in a week, 250 in five days. Sorry. So what? So so I, I I probably imagine that your 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 uh, fueling for race to the stones was basically eat all the nice food that they've got at all the stops. I I think I actually finished the 50k race to the stones having consumed far more calories than i burnt <laughs> off during during the race so um, good. Yeah. yeah yeah it was uh, yeah a lot of stuff that i would never buy like, like massive packs of jaff cakes and stuff yeah um but 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 for your multi-day one how do you what is your fueling strategy for a multi-day race like that? um yeah i mean i think first first and foremost i want to say it's, it's definitely like a try and test it thing i touch wood have a, a pretty good stomach and can eat and run relatively easily and, and can eat almost anything. But I say the biggest lesson for me in terms of fueling these types of races, especially multi-stage races, where you kind of pack what you're going to eat for the week and then you can't buy anything else. Like for example, when we're in the desert, you obviously couldn't just nip to the shops and pick up a few bits. I know that's not the same with every race, but let's assume that you're packing what you you, you are going to eat for the whole week and you're not going to be able to go to a shop and get anything else. I packed, and I have a very sweet tooth, but I packed purely sweet stuff you know flapjacks even like protein shakes and stuff were sweet I was having porridge in the morning that was sweet like everything I was eating apart from the dehydrated meals was sweet and it became very dull very quickly and and quite sickly and I remember actually Susie Chan who I'm sure everyone knows um had said to me pack blocks of parmesan and I was like don't be so ridiculous I'm not gonna eat that when I'm running and I was like just desperate for that parmesan by the time by, by it came to like day two I, I was so sick of I'll never eat 
and I love them. So it's very sad, but I'll never eat a Chia Charge Flatjack again because I ate so many of them <laughs> on that desert ultra marathon run and they're delicious and I love them. But I literally just stuffed myself a little silly with them and by the end of the week couldn't face it. And the same as porridge. I just probably won't ever eat a porridge again. So I think that's definitely one thing is pack a variety of foods that so that no matter how, you know, you obviously lose your appetite in these races, you get to a point where you don't want to eat anything and you, you have no idea what you're going to want or what you want to what you're going to crave. So I think pack lots of flavors and just be a little bit smart on that. We actually had, um, so with a lot of these races, you have, you have to carry uh, a certain amount of calories extra. So if anything happens to you, you have something with you. And during our ultramarathon world championship event in June, um, the guy who actually won, so you can't knock it, who uh, I'm going to stay within a few weeks, um, yet carry 800 calories of spare food and so for a weight kind of to gain on the weight side of things he uh just packed 800 grams of, of goose fat because mm. it hit the calories but obviously in terms of size yeah. it was very very small so i'm not saying go that extreme in your variety but um but definitely maybe pack some stuff yeah. you did don't he, think you want to eat did he just did he actually you did, did it in little gel it. packs don't you yeah well he didn't have to eat it because he didn't get into an emergency situation Right. Okay. But, oh, I right. see. So, yeah. So yeah, it was back up. It's back up. I get you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If he yeah, had, right. um, he he would have <laughs> he would have suffered slightly. The thing I also learned, and again from one experience, but um, what the guy I met when I was running, he carried caffeine bullets, which I'd never heard of and never used. I drink a lot of coffee. I'm fine with caffeine, but I just never heard of them or used them at that time. And I remember they were absolute godsend because they were minty, and it's the same as the like Bella Forte. They do like a chew that's lemon and mint. Mm. Something like that is so useful because you get to a point where your mouth is horrible because all you've eaten is sweet gels, you know, like fake food basically in some cases, and your mouth starts to taste so disgusting. And actually, previously the the caffeine bullets, the mint ones, were a treat, and then now I use the Bella Forte blocks a little bit more. But having something that kind of refreshes the palate is definitely yeah, definitely good. I think. Kieran, you know a bit, bit about fueling, don't you? Well, we've talked about your schnitzel obsession, but uh, you're, you're quite keen on on actual fueling gels and stuff, aren't you, when you're doing ultras? Yeah, I mean, I, I like to, I, I guess I sort of took a, when I've done these things, I like to take kind of foundation of what I know is going to be a really good sort of solid nutritional base. So it ticks all the boxes in terms of vitamins and minerals and what you need and have that often as a in a shake or as my kind of morning uh, starting point. I, I quite like with multi-day ultras as well to, or even on normal ultras, but I have like a liquid breakfast because it's easier to have to worry about opening up a stove and lighting a fire and cooking something and heating. So I just had liquid breakfast at the MDS, and I yeah, and I, I, if I if it wasn't it wasn't alcohol, no, not that kind, not the airport time kind, Tom. No, the, uh, but just it's a mix of kind of um, it's actually thirty three fuel. They do a shake, an elite kind of um, fueling shake, and some super greens. So I took some some fish oil stuff and bits and pieces to start the body as well. But I, you know, one thing I think that aside from that and that kind of race fueling bit, when you, if you're doing these and you're getting back and you've got time to eat and you're going to go again on a multi-stage, one other thing I found really useful was I compartmentalized my food. So I took lots of small bits of different food. So I had, you know, it's when you're thinking about the weight, I'd weighed out one nut of each different type, which took up 25 grams. And I had those for seven days and I had a few crisps that were vacuum sealed and I had different bits. And it had that effect of a bit like an airplane meal. When you get back to the campsite and you've, you're sort of killing time. You're sort of going through these sort of different snacky bits, but it also had the feeling that you were having different tastes and different flavors. And it was a bit more of an experience rather than just having one thing that's all the same and lots of it. So I would think about that. Give yourself different experiences because it's motivationally, I think that's really strong. And particularly with your camp or post race food as well. I think that goes for the same. If you've got them in your, in your pack, you've got a different selection. You never know. You know even on some races, you can have a day where some of the fueling products that you 
your go-to day in, day out, for some reason on that day, they don't go downright or you've had enough of them after a certain point. You, it helps to have somewhere else to go with some other food in your pack as an alternative. Things I really like as well, I go all kind of proper food like dates, nuts, those kind of things. They're, they're really good. Ap- dried apricots, dried fruit, those kind of things I think really help rather than always looking to kind of super sticky gels and these, the more artificial stuff. I also think it just makes you feel better, like especially with the multi-stage stuff. Often your proper meal is is a dehydrated meal, which some of them actually are relatively good nutritionally. But you do start to get to a point where you feel like, or I certainly did, where I felt like I just eaten a lot of beige. And actually, if you can have some kind of fruit or some nuts or something that you put in your body and you know is actually good for you, even if it's kind of a very small small thing and a bit of a placebo effect, even uh, it does make you feel a lot better and feel better in yourself. I think as you as you're running more even just to wake you up. And my final my final tip, Tom, is this. If you're going to somewhere hot, which sometimes if you're going to go do these multi-stage, they often are chocolate, a lot of sweets, and a lot of things with chocolate, or they'll melt. <laughs> they melt, and you end I'm up I'm not going to bother then. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> chocolate digestives, you, you can't be taking those. You know, there's lots of things that, yeah, you'll... They sound great when you get them out, and then you open them up. It's a disaster. So that's a mistake to avoid. And lots of things you don't think will melt do. Like even like I've, I've had flapjacks that yeah. just fall apart because they're like oil. Yeah. <laughs> By the time you take them out of your pocket, it's just mush. Okay, right. Okay, all noted. All noted. Uh, I'm still thinking I'll just take a gatto or something with me if I do one. <laughs> a... All right. Well, we've talked about food and fueling. Um, if you want to find out about the different types of gels and things that are, are available and and also about how Kieran fueled his uh, the new run over how many days was it Kieran did 60, 67 67 days. marathons 67 days so yeah he there's a there's a lot of videos on the channel that that Kieran's covered about uh, various fueling and eating strategies that he's got um but let's let's talk about the big one let's talk about kit uh, let's keep it simple to start off with. How important is kit for running ultra marathons? So pretty important. Yeah. <laughs> it can definitely make or break a race I think and and it's one of the few things you can control I think as well is a big thing you've you've got the opportunity assuming you haven't entered the ultramarathon ultra that's tomorrow you've got the opportunity to try and test these things and and of course things can go wrong on the day you can get blisters and shoes you've never got blisters in before it can all happen but it is one of the few things you can more or less control and so I think definitely getting it right you know stuff that doesn't chafe shoes that don't rub kit that you feel good in, kit that you feel comfortable in, um, I think also plays a big part in it. So, yeah, pretty high in my my books. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean... Getting, you getting have to say right. it, Kieran. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, no, don't buy anything. Yeah, don't, you don't need anything. No, I, I mean, I, the thing is, I think there's there's two sort of sides to this, and I think Hannah's right. It's like you, you feel like you can control it. I think it's really quite an important process to go through whilst you're training as well because there's lots of – there's probably lots of kind of fear or just like intimidation about what's going to happen to you on the ultra and having that feeling that you're affecting something in the build-up is quite a good sort of psychological boost that you've got these things that you can control and you get comfortable in your kit and you know it very well you know things like with the pack sitting there like testing where the bottles sit and how they're going to run and you know knowing exactly where all your bits and bobs are going to be and how accessible they are there's so many different things that you need to try out and each time you get this right and you learn something and it works it builds a bit of confidence in your ability to to go out and, and do this and particularly with those sort of longer multi-stage that that's a really big thing the one thing i'll say though you can get really I, i'm going to sort of contradict myself a little bit because it's really good to pay a lot of attention to detail on the kit and you have to you know make sure everything works right for you at the same time things are definitely going to go wrong and if you get to the point where you can't be adaptable when something breaks or something goes wrong and you love that bit of kit so much that psychologically 
puts you in, in a hole. That's a bad thing. So a good example on the Danube, I spent ages and ages choosing the bottles that I was going to take. My And I took two hard flasks um, from Camelback that are nicely kind of ergonomic. They sort of sit across the chest really nicely. And I was all chuffed to bits. That I found these special bottles and they were going to be my water for the, for the whole time, 650 mils. On day six, I took off my pack to put a jacket on in the rain on the side of the road in Bulgaria, ran on and then about six miles down, looked down to pick up my water bottle and one of them was gone. And in that moment, it was at the end of a long, long day. I was like, that's it, it's done. The, this Danube run is finished. I'm coming home. Like, how can I run without my bottles? You know, the ones that I liked. And and you, you can get into kind of a negative mindset if you rely too much. What I actually did was just buy a plastic bottle the next day. I carried that one and it actually ended up working better than the other soft, the other hard flask that I had anyway. So, but there's, there's, there's going to be little moments where, you know, your battery might die on something or, you know, a pair of socks might get a hole or something, but you have to not be so intent on that bit of kit being your magic kind of talisman that uh, becomes psychologically negative. You have to be able to move on and adapt and stick on any old pair of socks if you need to. I also think on that, okay. like don't, it's very easy to see someone wearing, and this is perhaps slightly hypocritical for me and what, what I do, but it's very easy to see someone wearing a piece of kit and assume that that is the only option and the best one for you when actually it would be so nice if that was the case and like someone could just write a list of like the top five pieces of kit that you needed for any ultra marathon. Unfortunately, that's not the case. It really is similar to the food. It is a case of just trying things, testing them. Um, and sometimes it's not the most expensive pair of shoes or the most expensive pair of shorts or the jazziest pair. It can be quite, a, you know, a box down a pair or whatever. It's just whatever your body is comfortable in and your body fits you know fits you or whatever so I think don't get too hung up on what people are telling you to wear definitely try and test all of those things but go with the one that actually works best for you not the one that I've done it so many times you know I want the pair of trainers that's white I don't want the pair of trainers that's pink and blue and purple I want to look cool and snazzy (laughs) but actually fundamentally they're probably not the best ones for me yes we've all been there (laughs) um um all right so i'm gonna make it difficult for you now we're not going to delve into all of the kit that you you guys use for your ultra runs because we could be here all day but i want can can you pick one thing out that you really rate and you you couldn't do an ultra without give give me your top pick oh good question so i won't get specific with the brand because i actually have a few pairs that i wear that are different brands but one kind of shift I made I guess when I stepped up into the slightly longer stuff is and I run in shorts a lot and I know obviously it's not always the case but um I I get quite hot running anyway um but I see a lot of ultra runners in like super short baggy shorts for me it doesn't work at all I tend to run in the like I think they're like eight inch um longer shorts I have some underarm ones I have some Lululemon ones but they both also have pockets in the side of them so obviously you can have stuff in your pack but also you can have stuff in your side pockets which is really good for, for a number of things the first being I don't know if you, if you want to take photos and stuff obviously you can have your phone in there or GoPro or whatever but also having really easily accessible food like the stuff that you're eating at that time if you're working your way through a pack of biscuits or whatever it is you're eating having having that, those in that, those really accessible pockets is really good and obviously shoving rubbish in those as well so you're not littering the trails so that's definitely something that I would always something that I would always wear when I'm running longer distances slightly longer shorts that then mean I don't chafe but also have the nice pockets in the side so I can get stuff in and get stuff out very easily. Yeah, I think you're among friends uh, talking about pockets. We spend a lot of time talking about pockets on a running kit. Uh, yeah. And if it hasn't got pockets, we're normally quite upset with it. So I imagine <laughs> on ultra, it's uh, significantly more important. Uh, are you going to talk about pockets as well, Kieran? Oh, I'm going to give an honourable mention to the Seamount Max Storage Shorts, the mm-hmm. two-in-one trail, the uh, Aosta H. You can't buy them. They've stopped selling them and selling them in the UK. But oh. they're amazing. They've got the built-in belt and pockets galore and they don't chafe and they're they're absolutely brilliant for ultras, but I think there's one. I, it's, for me, there's like one bit of kit that is 
an almost it's like an essential that I have to have for any ultra. It doesn't really matter what else I wear. This will help. And it's it's called Two Tom Sport Shield, and it's basically anti chafe um, balm roll on. And if you put that on in the right places, it, it kind of almost doesn't matter what you're wearing. You can sort of fight off the chafe. And that that was just an absolute godsend. So, you know, again, if you're going to places to multi-day ultras where it's you're in the desert or there's sand, the stuff that sand and Vaseline turns into uh, an absolute nightmare that will basically cut you to ribbons. So you need something different. And the two times I've been using it for a decade and it's it's absolutely brilliant. No chafe, no matter how long I run. So that is my absolute go-to. That's one thing I won't compromise on. Nice, eloquently explained as well, because I've been in a pub with you where you've explained that to me in uh, more detail than I wanted. So um, <laughs> that, 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 thanks for, for the, um, the nice version of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, all right then, and then I think finally, let's just uh, finish it up with, and this is probably going to be a difficult one for you both, but you've, you've given quite a lot of advice to people listening to this about doing ultras and maybe doing their first ultra, but if there was one piece of advice above anything else that you could give to somebody who'd never done it before and wanted to, to, to was heading out in about two months for their first ultra what would that be well I think I touched on on kind of the saying yes side of things like don't be afraid to do something that scares you obviously be sensible slightly sensible mm-hmm. with it but don't be afraid to do something the other thing for me and perhaps slightly cliche because of what I do but um is is try and get a friend to do it with you like the the process the training process is so much more enjoyable when you've got someone else to suffer with slightly when when suffering occurs um but also the kind of celebration of the achievement i think is is so much nicer some of my best memories are again going back to emily but are finishing i did my first 100k with emily we obviously did our first have supported races with together in may we're going back to the uh the ultra running world together which has taken me about three years to convince her to sign up again so very proud of myself to yeah. got her to do that um but it is the best feeling. Not only, even if you don't run together, you know, seeing someone else who you know has gone through the same process, worked as hard as you have, put in the miles, put in the time, achieving something that perhaps they never thought they would is, um, is I think, a, a very, very nice a nice feeling. So, yeah, try and uh, sign up a buddy too. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of echo what Hannah said. I think the biggest thing is just believe in yourself. You know, don't, you know, give it a crack. Know that you're capable of more than you think, but you'll never find out unless you actually go and give it a shot. And the other thing I think that is a lot of people maybe miss the way that I now kind of frame these things. Cause I've not finished a lot of races. I've gone to ultras and, and blown up and not gotten there. But for me getting to the start line, you should see that as success in its own right, because you've signed up and you've given it a crack and you've had a go and you've been brave enough to say, I'm going to go and try and do that thing that terrifies me. And whether that's 50 Ks or whether that's, you know, seven days in the desert, getting to the start line is a success in its own right. And everything beyond that is a bonus. So I, that's the way I kind of frame it. And I think that's a really sort of positive mindset to go into any ultra with. Nice. And my advice is if you're doing one of these races like the Threshold Series, don't go mental with the free food because it is like literally being a kid in a sweet shop, um, <laughs> especially if you don't you don't eat that many sweets normally. And I think at the end, I I had a bag. I, I, I was picking it up as I went along and I was filling my bag with it. And I got <laughs> to the end and I had kilos. so much. I just didn't want any of it. It was... Yeah, completely unnecessary. I think we were in the same tent, weren't I? And I just had sweets all over yeah. before the tent. Didn't want any of them. I had so many Freddos. Fifteen I remember... kilos extra as well. Yeah, I remember finishing the race with like just pockets of Freddos. Like, I hadn't seen Freddos in so long, so every time I went to an A station, I just like shoved them in my pocket. It was also quite a warm day, so 
It won't go to the end. Yeah. Top advice. Top advice. Well, that is making me want to do another one now, just to, to make that mistake again. There we go. Um, you succeeded. Yeah. You succeeded. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but not in the way you wanted to. Um, <laughs> thanks, guys. And um, thanks, Hannah, for joining us uh, to talk through ultra running and, and give us your advice and uh, sorry i forgot to mention earlier that you're you're part of twice the health as well if people want to find you on on instagram yes, where sir. you do much more than just ultras you do all sorts of fitness yeah well emily does emily uh, is much more versatile than i am <laughs> i just run a really long way very slowly but yes thank you so much for having me it's been it's been lovely absolute pleasure and thank you kieran for um not going into too much detail about chafing cream <laughs> there's a lot of time for that <laughs> okay guys catch you later thanks so much so damien thanks very much for joining us before i get before we go into kind of all of the nitty-gritty and there is a lot of nitty-gritty in this book about kind of how we can sort of each of us runners can kind of reduce our environmental impact i was really interested to get a sense of your journey to this book really so you know i think your journey from from discovering running to becoming kind of one of the UK's top ultra runners, setting all kinds of records, and then eventually sort of finding your way to a point where you felt that basically there was a, a moment of kind of an awakening to sort of something needs to be done to kind of help runners understand our environmental impact in the kind of wider sense. Could you just give us a little talk through about, you know, that journey? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm someone who's come to running late, late, I suppose, like quite a lot of people do uh, in my sort of mid mid 30s. And yeah, really fell for it hard, got pretty carried away, you know, was soon doing ultra marathons and just loved, loved that. And I was, yeah, I think, yeah, four years after my first marathon, which I ran dressed as a toilet, I was in the um, GB trail running team uh, and sort of running UTMB and, and, and challenging for the top 10 there and, and some other big races yeah just just really fell for it hard still absolutely love it now 10 years on but i suppose over time yeah well actually it was it was dan and, and charlotte at rerun clothing who who i think first sort of sounded the alarm in the running world that you know i think most of us have an idea that climate change is happening and and you see pictures of polar bears but but it's difficult to connect that maybe to what you do on a day-to-day basis or our, or or to our running and it was dan and charlotte who first kind of said actually there's lots of t-shirt waste lots of clothing waste and lots of shoe waste happening in, in in the running world and it's a huge problem and and they connected to the wider waste clothing waste issue which is an epic global problem and that got me thinking more about I suppose my footprint and that's almost a separate debate to have like how much should you concentrate on your own personal footprint but and, and I was an elite athlete flying around flying around the world really I suppose I, I did fly to America once mostly around Europe and I suppose yeah getting new kit for my sponsors putting it on Instagram not really realizing how that was playing out I suppose. And as I look, looked into it more, I became, I was woken up a bit, uh, pun, pun intended, by by sort of extinction rebellion protests as well, started looking into it all a bit more and kind of thought I can't, personally, I couldn't carry on, you know, flying as much as I was, taking as much new kit as, as and, and celebrating sort of new kit and waste as much as I was. And, and I guess that sent me looking looking into all these areas and, and I, I was given the opportunity to sort of do a book on that as well. So um Yes, that's broadly that's broadly the journey, I suppose. And I guess you know, for for full transparency, obviously, I'm there's this kind of big kind of gear machine, or there's a there's a huge kind of consumerism sort of machine that sort of is around running. It's kind of hard to avoid it these days with new shoes, new watches, you know, constant updates of clothing, you know, seasons of of jackets and base layers and shorts and new socks and you know, and I'm I'm part of that machinery really. Even myself, I test all the running gear. 
you know, I'm out there kind of almost recommending people to to whether they should upgrade or not to different watches and different pieces of tech. And I think this is this is something that is, um, I guess it's it's quite a complicated beast. Even I've also written about sort of the environmental impact of, of, of running itself. It's quite a complicated beast to get your head into to, to identify what's good and what's bad in this world. Throughout your research into the book, how difficult was it to really kind of zero in and isolate things that could have a positive benefit or see the wood for the trees, I guess? Oh, <laughs> well, yes, it was a massive, a massive headache, if I'm honest. Um, just, just to give a very quick, broad overview for, for any runner, there are basically three areas to think about. And, and that's that's your travel, which most cases will be the biggest slice. Your diet, which is probably the third, probably the smaller slice. And the middle slice is probably uh, our kit, basically. And, and, and most of the problem with kit is in the production stage of it, of it being made. There's a lot of emissions when it's made. And usually it's because it's Asian factories that are p- powered by coal. And there's a lot more to it than that, but I'm oversimplifying. So there's a lot of, and, and, and underpinning all of that, there is an overconsumption crisis where just, Obviously, it's, it's capitalism. All these brands are competing. They're trying to make the new, better product. So there's just too much is being made. Um, I've got a load of stats in, in the book about you know how much is being thrown away, how much is being made. Off the top of my head, nothing's coming to my head. Although the running in, sorry, the running shoes, sorry, the trainer industry, so not just running shoes, but trainers globally, has, has possibly the same emissions as the United Kingdom, which I found pretty staggering. And that comes mostly from, yeah, they're just producing shoes, producing shoes, producing shoes. And then, of course, we're told to throw them away after 300 miles, which is a big, big fat myth. So, yeah, there's a massive overconsumption, overproduction. And there are there are so many facets to that. Um, I don't know how, how long you've got, but there's and, and then, yeah. And, and then if you look at something like the cotton industry, there's all sorts of water. Water usage, for example, is just incredible. And, and the dye and the, and the waste pollution in the water, blah, blah, blah. So there's just so many facets to it. And then, and then, what I found extra depressing with with the clothing and shoe industry was, I suppose, the greenwashing and the bull really, and 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 some of these companies saying, "Hey, we've made a shoe with a bit of mushroom in, or a bit of recycled plastic, so it's sustainable." But in many cases, that'll be one one sustainable shoe in thirty shoes that they make. Why, if they care about it, why aren't? And it really makes a difference. Why aren't all their shoes made that way? For example. So I I got I felt really frustrated and depressed actually with with the industry. If I'm honest, I did find some smaller companies doing some of the right things. Really, the overriding message was making less. Unfortunately, making less, buying less. It's not a very sexy thing to say. It's not exciting, especially this time of year approaching Christmas. And I'll be honest, I still like getting a new pair of shoes. Like and and like you, I'm conflicted. I'm an ambassador for a, for a brand. I got some conflict there. I, I think I do it better than I used to. And I also think, you know, there has to be a middle way where I, I wear running shoes nearly all day, every day. Like I, I love running kit. I just have less of it now. Like I ask for less of it. I buy less of it. But really, these companies, I think, have got to step up and, and make make less, make more durable products. Stop, stop, you know, stop the greenwashing with with claims, you know, a little bit of algae or a little bit of sugar cane, that that's really making a difference. But yeah, it's 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 a, it's, a, it's a huge it's a huge headache. And there are some companies who I think are trying to trying to do the right thing but yeah it's really hard for us it's really hard for us to understand which companies are, are, are doing the right thing and and i don't i think i came out with some some hints and clues but but not a not a conclusive sort of picture it's it's yeah it's a headache it's a big headache <laughs> and do you, do you think that you know because i guess from, from my point of view it feels yeah you sort of approach this and it's quite confusing and you sort of go and you go well, this shoe appears to be you know it's being sold to me as if it's doing something good and then you you dive a bit deeper into it and even the production of some of the materials 
are then not necessarily as eco-friendly as they're sort of pretending to be because they're more energy, you know, they consume more energy or, you know, how, how much of this is should be is, is in our own hands versus how much of it needs to be addressed by the brands? Well, that that's, yeah, that that's almost the million dollar question. I mean, I think there should be more emphasis on the brands because they've got more power, more knowledge. Just, I mean, Nike, for example, they're one of the absolute biggest companies in the, in the whole world and they're far bigger than any other sportswear companies. Uh, Adidas are sort of second biggest and then you've got, and they're about half the size of Nike and then you've got a load of brands below that, you know, the, the mainstream ASICs and, and, and people like that who are still pretty, you know, are still big companies, make, make billions of pounds, but Nike are just huge and they, and they are doing some things, both Nike and Adidas, but really a lot of the things they can improve on are, uh, is sort of the unsexy stuff behind the scenes. So it's improving the energy at the factories, for example, trying to get them onto renewables. If all those factories were powered by renewables, it would make a huge difference, actually. However, I'm told by my sponsors, you know, most of this stuff's made in, a- in Asia. And it's not always that simple because in, say, China, it's not it's not like our country. The, the government have a lot of say in certain in, in, in energy use and things. It's not it's not like Britain. So it, it, it's often more complex than we think. So, like. I feel like Nike and Adidas especially could do more, but it's not as simple as, you know, there's there's an element of understanding or patience. But I think I think they should just all be more honest and not not pretend they're saving the planet with a little bit of recycled plastic that may or may not have come from the ocean. I think, you know, I think they should sort of stop. Yeah. Stop greenwashing. Stop sort of pretending they're doing more than they are, I think, and just be more honest uh, with us. <laughs> And is there a real danger that you know if if some you know some of the things you've you've talked about there are sort of held up as the you know we're doing the right thing we're doing the right thing and then you sort of see stories or you know they're slightly undermined the, the sort of when the real picture maybe comes out and then you know I think that can somehow sort of feed a little bit more of the well we you know the helplessness that you might feel as a as a consumer because you thought you were doing right and then it, you don't know what's kind of what's truth and lies oh hundred percent yeah and um. So, so really, the message is simple. It, it probably, well, it is like I suppose buy less, make things last longer, but it, and and, and then yeah, repair, re- repair where possible. And some brands help with this, and some don't. And and then it's recycle responsibly. But but almost none of these brands offer genuine recycling. So, and it is very, it is very hard. Trainers are made of, of so many different parts. It, it is tricky, and there's a lot of glue involved and stuff. So really, it's things that last, durable products is actually one of the one of the best answers for now and and back to sort of sustainable materials there is a little study that showed kind of like if you buy three pairs of you know sustainable eco-friendly shoes that will be worse than two pairs that aren't eco-friendly but they last a bit longer or just basically three pairs is worse than two pairs is another way of thinking of it so really but but those brands yeah they might make one sustainable shoe but they're bringing out other ones in new colors all the you know all the time so they're trying to sell 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 to you and they're saying hey it's a sustainable one we're sustainable but the sell 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 I'm not an economist and we're in capitalism and, and companies, you know, feel they need to make more and more profit. So I appreciate it's a tricky one, but yeah, I think they need to sort of, well, one, one angle is they should own, and one or two companies do do this. They could streamline their products and make, you know, a, a shoe that will really last, but also not, not bring out a shoe every six months or every year, only when it really is a change, like there's a design change or, or material improvement, a functional upgrade, I think they call it in the industry. Now I appreciate I appreciate to them that might sound like I suppose making less money, but I mean that's almost the way we've got to go, really. Um, and you more if I mean a lot of my friends are quite stingy, right, um, with their shoes, and they want shoes that will last. So if there's a company where the shoes they can get a thousand miles out of the shoe, they'll probably go to that company. So there is something commercially viable in durability, I believe. But and I guess do you think I mean 
I guess the Holy Grail is a durable shoe that's also fully recyclable. You know, you see some brands on running trying to kind of push us that way where we've got, you know, you, it's a subscription model, basically. So then potentially there's a commercial model there if they can make those two things come together. So you don't have to up, you don't have to change your shoes every two months or whatever if you don't want to. But the option is there. And that maybe is, a, is one sort of future model that perhaps could help with some of this. Yeah, and, and I do look at the on-shoe, especially actually in the book quite a lot. I interview one of the designers of it, and I sort of ask, um, a set, you know, someone who makes shoes for a separate company, their views on it. And in theory, it's it's a really good thing. I guess it's just so new at the moment that we don't know whether it really works. But even if it doesn't, it is it is a step forward, pun not intended. It is it is the right kind of idea. Um, so yeah, I do I do applaud on for that. Let's yeah, let's hope it works well. But then I suppose it's the same argument comes back of like. If they do that for one of their shoes, then really they should be doing that for all their shoes. But I don't want to jump on them if they're the ones making progress there. And I think two or three other companies have claimed, yeah, are, are trying to make recycled sho- recyclable shoes. So yeah, no, that could that could be a model that that works well going forward. And then just on on the topic of shoes, I guess I mean this might be a little bit of a difficult question for you, but and this is one I think we get posted a lot. It's, it's, if I have to, you know, I've got that moment of performance. You're going to go out and run your kind of A race. And you've got, you know, should I buy, do I, I've put in all this effort, do I buy, do I have that shoe that might not offer as good a performance as another shoe? The other one is kind of slightly more environmentally friendly. The one that gives me delivery of the performance is, is there as well. How do you wrestle with that that decision? Would you, would your advice be, well, actually, now we have to change our mindset and start to go, well, actually, you've got to go with the one that is environmentally sounder. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great, I mean, that's going to be the dilemma we're all going to, we're all having, we're all going to have. I would just go back to that argument, actually, of just just do your best to make it last, you know. Yeah. So when, in the book, I'm quite honest, it makes me think about my shoe collection. So I go to my shoe collection, I count, I've got 25 pairs of shoes and that, and, and I felt instant sort of shame. I, I texted, sorry, I got a couple of big runner WhatsApp groups. So I asked other people, well, how many shoes did they have? And the average seemed to be about nine. So I was instantly sort of quite <laughs> embarrassed there. But as someone in the industry pointed out to me, like as long as you properly use them, like as long as you use them as, as thoroughly as can be, and so they don't get thrown away, you know, before their active life has expired. You know, that 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 is OK, like as long as there's not waste, extra waste. So I would I would say, yeah, just try and make sure those shoes, yeah, get, get everything you can out of them, because a lot's a lot's gone into their creation, I suppose. Yeah, hopefully then, that's a way forward. And then I, I think it's, it's what's also interesting for me is that you sort of see the shoe industry. I think the apparel industry takes quite a lot of heat. There's a lot of focus on the environmental footprint out of those things. There's other sort of sections of running which are becoming more sort of prevalent, running watches, pods, all these kind of the extra technology. And they don't seem to get the same kind of scrutiny as the, the shoes. You know, actually, I think Sunto very recently became the first brand to stick a, a carbon emissions figure on one of their watches to say this is what it takes to produce it. That's the first time we've seen it. In, so, in the sort of technological side of things, how, how far do those guys have to go as well, do you think, to improve their game? Yeah, no, that's, um, to be totally honest, I I, I wrote too much, as, as you can maybe imagine, and I did have a long section on watches, actually, and, and it was just like, oh, I, I need to cut something. So one way to think of it from a consumer point of view is basically everything we buy will have some type of footprint, which will have come mostly from its production, from its creation, and yeah, something, a watch made of, it's made of raw materials, metals that will have had, you know, a significant impact in its creation. And and yeah, and I started thinking about what else have I got? You know, foam roller, I've got a treadmill, I've got kettlebells, resistance bands, and actually I'm into ultra running on trails. So I've got poles, I've got packs, I've got head torches, I've got so much kit. Actually, I've got a cupboard full of kit. And 
the way to think of that is if you're using it, then that's good. That's all right because because it's it's the, the pain it caused at the beginning is is kind of worth it. Um, if you're not using it, I've got used to just sort of passing them on to mates or, or giving them to charities. But yeah, it, 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 that will be the third for a runner that big section of kit. But it's all your kit. It's all your kit really. And a watch. There wasn't there wasn't a study to show what, what that would be. But you'll say you'll. I think I estimated in the book it was like maybe a quarter of what a quarter or a third of what a smartphone might cost. And a smartphone has a really significant. Um, and you can but here's the thing you can go on and on you can look at your data so like the internet is a problem you know because because this huge servers of data saving all our old emails and our old photos um and that's all creating heat and has to be cooled down that's a huge problem globally so even even deleting old emails actually can be sort of improving your footprint but that's when you really get down into that almost that um guilt for existing almost like because your food as well in the morning you know almost everything you do any you know, and you end up feeling guilty for existing. And then you're like, well, hold on. A lot of this, well, almost all of this is not our fault as individuals. We, we, we've inherited the system based on fossil fuels. And I actually think in most cases, yeah, quite a few runners could, could I suppose, buy a few less things, buy maybe just spend a bit more time researching it, not go for the very latest product if you don't need it. But ultimately, if you've got five minutes spare a week, I would say email your MP, join in online campaigns, go and join in a protest. I think that's going to have more effect. We call that, broadly speaking, I suppose, you know, trying to push for sy- systemic change or, or being a little bit activist. I think that will have more effect than than sort of, you know, washing up your hummus pots for, for recycling, which which really won't have ultimately all that effect, um, big impact. Um, so I think that's the overall message really is, is yeah, those three areas, your travel, your, your, all your kit and, and your, your fueling, they're the three areas to think about. And after that, I would say, you know, don't get don't get too obsessed with the with your own footprint. Try and try and force, you know, the, the super emitters, the government, the big brands encourage or bully or whatever word you want to use uh, them to improve because they can just do so much more than us. And on that note, I mean, one of the one of the areas where I've, I think I feel like I've seen this sort of most evident on social media is actually tease not trees in and around races and people kind of calling on race organisers to they basically take kind of technical T-shirts out of goodie bags and things and putting a little bit of pressure on saying that we don't really need them and you can have a voice. I think it'd be interesting to sort of get your take on, you know, it comes to the sort of that moment of racing and there's a couple of elements here. One is how do you get to the race and where is it? And then there's the other bit about, you know, what impact do those big races have? What what kind of things did you find out in your research about those two areas? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I was a little bit surprised, actually. So when I really looked at a race event, in most cases, over 90% of a race, a race's emissions came from us traveling there. You know, so so it was kind of on us to an extent. So obviously, especially if we fly, that that hugely increases our footprint and the race's footprint. I'm not saying that we should give up flying altogether. I think I think just it's understanding the value or the damage and then, and then weighing up as an individual whether you think it's worth it. I suppose I, I definitely don't want to be too finger pointy or um, or preachy. I've done most of the international races I wanted to do, you know, so it's easy for me to go, oh, no one should fly we should only fly once a year but i suppose most people i know who care fly less and 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 that's okay that's progress and and we shouldn't be trying to reach this idea of perfection because it's just totally elusive you know it's not you, you can't almost can't move for emitting in some form so so yeah it, it's when you when you do races yeah it's the travel that's that's the big thing things like plastic bottles and uh, t-shirts you know that's still a big waste or overconsumption issue but it's not nearly as bad as big as, as how you traveled there but w- there was some good news with the travel i mean planes are obviously worse single occupant car journeys would be the next worst thing train journeys are, are, are usually the best way usually the lowest carbon 
Uh, and I've I've learned, I suppose I didn't really realise before, but I can, you know, channel tunnel, we can get quite far in Europe on trains. Admittedly, that's not always going to be cost effective for everyone. So, you know, not judging people too much. But actually four people in a car is about the same as a car journey. So if you, you know, get together with your running club or some mates or, or the race Facebook page. And again, that doesn't suit everyone, but that can be a way actually to, to reduce footprint overall. So, yeah, it was all about the travel, really, with the races. I would say, yeah, um, Trees and Not Tees have done a fantastic job of sort of spreading awareness. And hopefully most people know about them now anyway. And it's just the idea that you plant a tree instead of getting yet another T-shirt. I feel like hopefully hopefully we've, we've reached some some good level of awareness there. But really, it's the travel thing. And that surprised me. I didn't really consider how much of an impact that was, if I'm honest, before. And I feel like there were two parts of the question. I've maybe forgotten the other part, or maybe I've already answered it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, you've all, I think you've covered sort of both those off, off in one. And I think it's just it's sort of interesting about maybe supporting kind of local races where you can. And, and again, I, you, you know, you've got to look, I think... For me, I sort of now I'm trying to kind of look a bit inwardly and say, if I, yeah, do I do I really need to go and do that other city marathon in in that location? Can I get the same somewhere sort of closer to home? Particularly, you know, if you look at a lot of people trying to choose fast courses or or those things. I mean, I I personally, I'd love to see a bit more of a. I mean, one one thing I sort of read in the book was actually about the the world marathon majors, which has obviously been a big kind of campaign by Abbott to get everybody to go and do you know six of the big majors, but. How nice it would be if there was like a UK majors, you know, and although oh, I know yeah. that that I guess, you know, you also talk about kind of park run tourism and again, all of these things in some way will emit. So, you know, it's many better just to go to your local park run than it is to go and do 52 park runs around the country. And the same is, you know, but it's maybe better to do six marathons in the UK than it is to do, you know, six across the world. But do you think we'll see sort of changes like that? Or will we have to embrace that kind of attitude, you think? I... I... I think it I think it has to go that way a bit. Um and I did chat with <laughs> well, London Marathon stopped replying to my emails if I'm honest. They yeah, yeah, I think it has to go that way a little bit. But but again, I don't want to be too preachy because as I say, I've done most of the big races I wanted to do. And and I, I must admit there's two or three huge like bucket list races I want to do left and they're in America. And really the only practical thing is to fly. So in the next year or two, I will. I haven't flown for three years at the moment, but I will have to do a flight or two. So I don't think anyone. I don't think we have to sort of give up our dreams. That just doesn't seem fair. But it's just knowing the maybe knowing the cost of of what you're doing. Maybe counterbalancing that elsewhere, offsetting is a whole other debate whether that's really worthwhile. But yeah, I think a lot of runners I know are doing. I suppose more local races or just another idea is when you go if you fly somewhere or, or do a big trip you know just stay stay longer i don't know is there a friend or relative nearby you can visit or can you do any sort of work thing around it and i hear lots of great stories about people doing those sorts of things and that's that's it sounds a bit wishy-washy but that comes from sort of mike berners lee who's who's the foremost academic on personal footprints so i yeah i think it comes back to knowing knowing the cost of these yeah. things and then making your own decisions really and then you know on that note sort of knowing the cost and when when it comes to looping a little bit back to products or even kind of races i guess how was it did you in your research did you uncover any ways that we can sort of more readily spot when something's greenwashing because i think that's one of the things that i find hardest you know with there there's signs that we can look for that this may or may not be legitimate or places we can go to kind of cross-reference and check you know how do we do a little bit of that due diligence ourselves yeah that's a great question i, I mean i guess the honest thing is no there isn't there isn't one sort of easy clear way i do in the book and, and maybe i can maybe i can send you send you some links after after our chat in the book i do go into that a bit but it, but it, it's kind of five. It's, it's something like five different things to think about. I mean, one, there's a really good website called ethicalconsumer.org, and you do have to pay them a small con- subscription. But they're sort of totally independent, and they rank brands 
on on sort of sustainability and, and ethics overall. There's another one which its name isn't coming to me right this second, but I can, I, I'll send you it. I'll send you a link to yeah. it. Yeah, so and the, we'll so pop them in some, the caption. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I'll send you a few things afterwards. But yeah, it's not it's not easy. So really, I think it's that, that I think yeah has to go back to the message really of of I suppose buying less. These brands hopefully making less and making better products that last. Yeah, it's not it's not an exciting message, is it? <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, but it's 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 one way at least to sort of reduce the the complexity of it. I guess is you know yeah, as you said, you you know basically the, the kind of the refuse, you know, re- reduce, recycle, and just thinking a little bit more about the, the the need and the purpose, and being I guess a little bit more open and honest with yourself about about those things, and then you know brands kind of supporting us in that by not constantly hammering us and enticing us with with new things i mean one other area that sort of springs to mind is when we were talking about watches before there are some brands who roll new features down to existing watches if the hardware supports it whereas other brands save new features and put them in new watches so every year you feel like you need to upgrade my personal thought is we, we need to move to a world where actually you know the we're incentivized to keep the same product and and even again, if that's a subscription model where maybe you pay a little bit to get those updates, mm. but you don't have to change out your hardware would be a would be a better situation than the one we've got now. And then yeah. I, I guess, so is there anything else that came out of your research when you were doing the book that you thought, actually, that's startling? That's kind of the, one of the biggest kind of shocking revelations that you sort of discovered as you were doing this, that you thought that's an absolute instant change that I have to make right now? Well, I must admit, it, it's probably the diet, the diet stuff. There's a, when I realised, basically sort of how bad beef is for the planet uh i pretty i pretty much turned vegan not quite on the spot but there's a graph on you know, there's a, there's an oxford university website called ourworldindata.org um and that has a four year study the, the most authoritative study on sort of um food emissions and yeah when when i saw how bad beef and then and then i suppose meat and dairy i don't want to be too much of an annoying annoying vegan but yeah no one's expecting everyone to turn vegan by the way but a lot of us probably need to cut way down uh, especially red meat and 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 some dairy. And yeah, as, in terms of that being a running issue, that was where it was difficult to pin it on running. Although we are encouraged, of course, to have more protein, you know, to recover from muscles. And I used to, yeah, I used to be necking the chocolate milk after most long runs and fast runs. I'm not saying that's the end of the world, especially if you're not eating much beef or, or, or lamb is the next worst one. But yeah, when I saw the stats, I sort of, yeah, pretty much gave up those items. And I've I've noticed sort of no... I mean, some people claim, you know, a plant-based diet makes you a better athlete. I haven't felt that, but it's made me no worse. And, I, and I've had some some blood tests to sort of see if I was missing anything. And, and I've been been in really good health. But I, yeah, I don't want to be too much of a annoying vegan. But that was probably the biggest shock was, yeah, how bad, how, how we, um, and outside of the running world, our diet will be a quarter of our, a quarter of our sort of footprint. So it's a big, it's a big part of our, our emissions. Yeah, that was probably the biggest one. And then after that, it was probably what I mentioned earlier on was, was I suppose, the running shoes and then the clothing industry overall, the impact it has on the planet. But yeah, and, and just one last thing, I suppose, was I got properly depressed as I'm probably depressing. If anyone's still watching, I'm prob- <laughs> probably depressed. I was just going to say. I, but actually, I, was... the end of the book. <laughs> I did find some hopeful things and, and whether it's individual runners or some brands, both in nutrition and, 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 and sportswear who were really making the extra effort to, to do the right things. So it wasn't, t- it's not total gloom and doom. And I don't want people to feel too bad about the running because running is an amazing thing, you know, and, and I almost forgot that in the book. And then I came back to actually running is, is incredible, isn't it? Like it's brilliant. And if we're out there running, you know, there's, we're actually not emitting very much at all when we're running. Whereas nearly everything else we do 
it, we're, we're nearly always emitting. So, so and, and running's brilliant for lots of other reasons as well. Like it probably keep us out of, out of the NHS, for example. It might not keep us away from local physios, but but that, that that's not quite so much of a, a problem. So, I mean, I, I guess if you take that into account, if you're a, a healthier human, maybe in other areas, emits less carbon as well, whatever we're doing. Yeah, we're doing basically just got to take up ultras and go for seven or eight hours a day right i mean then before you'll do it yeah just yeah fueled fueled on uh on on, on plant-based kind of foods and stuff but yeah i mean i was going to say it's um it's a wonderful book there's so much detail in here there's some joviality in there but it, it's sort of it balances what can be quite a depressing subject and i, I think the, the best thing to come from from this book is that there are things that you can do and you don't need to necessarily feel kind of helpless in the face of what can look like this enormous kind of monolithic sort of enormous impossible problem. And uh, yeah, so I totally recommend people to, if you're, if you're thinking about what you can do to improve your environmental kind of impact, this is a great place to start. And there are some other places, there are some other kind of brilliant resources mentioned in this book that can give you kind of a, a helping hand and a, and a step on from that. Damien, just before we sort of go, is there anywhere else that people can kind of follow or any other places they should go and look for good information <clears throat> on this topic that you'd recommend. So the Green Runners, perhaps. Yes, I co-founded a group called the Green Runners. I'm pretty sure it's just thegreenrunners.com. We welcome anyone. Uh, you just have to make one pledge to improve in one in one of the four key areas. So we're not after just you know just vegans or people giving up flying. It's just improving a bit. So we're after progress, not perfection. There's also the Athlete Climate Academy, which is a Killian Journey thing, which just has some brilliant resources for runners. But and by all means, anyone has any questions, look me up, maybe on Instagram or Twitter. And, and yeah, happy to answer questions. And yeah, thank, thanks. Thanks for anyone who's still watching. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for coming on and uh, tackling what is inevitably quite a difficult subject, but one that's really, really important. So, yeah, it's been a pleasure to chat, Damien. Thank you very much. That's it from us this month. Thanks a lot for listening or watching the podcast. And don't forget to follow us on YouTube or follow us on the various podcast providers of your choice to make sure that you are notified when we release the next one at the end of February. Thanks a lot for listening or watching and we'll catch you next time. This episode of the podcast was presented by Tom Wheatley, Kieran Alger and Hannah Tildesley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley. The music was by Fear of Tigers.